let, let, let's do a little little history lesson, okay? Um, I had, uh, I'll give you a little personal history. I was thinking yesterday, we, we did one of those up and back to Sarcoxy in a day kind of things. It's four hours one way and five hours visiting and and then in in time to go to bed last night. So, uh, But I was thinking a lot over this last weekend about, and I can't, re- dear, I can't remember what I was thinking other than I wanted to be impressive. But the first time that I met Rhonda's folks was December of 1976. So that would have been 39 years ago, I think. 38 years ago, anyway, something like that. Um, and I put on the, my best suit and tie and got on an airplane. You don't do that anymore, do you? Put on my best suit and tie, got on an airplane on Christmas night, 1976, and flew to meet her parents. I'd already asked her to marry me, but I, without asking Pete's approval. So I'm just, it's a wonder he still likes me. But uh, um, uh, drove, flew down there, and then we had a two-hour f- drive from Tampa, uh, just the four of us in the car. That was very interesting, and I was very nervous. And uh, um, Pete... Well, Pete was a, like a, a sheriff's deputy then. He, yeah, you bet he was packing up, I'm sure. Yeah. I know. You know, I'd already bought the ring, Ellie, before I ever asked the guy, you know. But uh, anyway, we're going to talk a little bit about marriage and family and some of those things in some biblical uh, passages, and, and one of them is today. And it's going to be interesting I did a little research and, and uh, over the week about um, marriage in the Old Testament and marriage in modern day, and it, it's interesting to me. Um, uh, you're interested in these things. You may be. You may not. I did a little research on polygamy in the United States because we're going to talk about a polygamous family, and uh, from the Old Testament. What I need to say at the outset is that. God is not pleased with that, okay? In fact, when it's, uh, some people will use even the story we're going to talk about today as, um, as um, kind of approval for, for this practice, illegal practice in this country of polygamy. And what you need to know is that, I, from what I can see in the scriptures, it's only reported on, it's never blessed, it's never Uh, indicated that it always causes trouble. We're going to talk about the trouble beginning at the end of of chapter 29 of Genesis today. But um, in some of my reading, when I was in seminary, I took a a cult study class, and and we got in, we were talking about uh, one particular U.S. cult um, in part of this course, and we did a lot of study on, I had to do a lot of research on U.S. um, case law on polygamy in uh, in the 1800s, and it's very very interesting to study some of that stuff. I did read uh, just this morning that uh, right now, still in Utah, there are over 40,000 polygamous families in Utah, or one point almost 1.4 1.5 percent of the of the Utah population is. So, which I just find that really really interesting. Of course, you know that that kind of parallels and and less. Uh, Les Morgan also wags his little head. A lot of this case law came from Nauvoo, Illinois, or Nauvoo, Illinois also. So um, um, uh, it's interesting how they would use the scriptures to kind of prop that up, and yet the scripture doesn't, doesn't really bless it. 
God never blesses that. In fact, it causes kind of some trouble. Now, what we remember, if you remember looking back um, uh, at, at Old Testament scripture, is that the scriptures, the book of Genesis begins with kind of a broad arc or a grand dramatic account of worldwide significance like creation of the world and the fall of sinful humanity and the, the flood of judgment. And then we meet this little family. Um, uh, it, it, it's a small family to begin with. It's just Abram and Sarah, and, uh, or Sarai at the time. And uh, that we kind of date that little story at about 2000 B.C., conservatively, uh, which is kind of an interesting point in history if you, if you follow that kind of stuff. Abram um, goes on to the promised land and, and uh, has um, a son, he actually has two sons, but one son of promise is Isaac. And Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And you remember kind of the intrigue that surrounded uh, their lives. And they were kind of fighting, um, infighting from, from kind of the beginning. You could argue they were fighting before birth. Um, uh, my, uh, an old pastor, when my, kid, when my kids were little, an older pastor that we worked around or were around a lot in those days, used to call my son Jacob heel grabber because that's what the name Jacob means. And uh, um, because it was one, it, he kind of supplanted his brother, you know, that whole story. Well, if you remember the story, he, he steals Esau's birthright and then his mom says, you better get out of here. And she sends him away to her brother uh, and to, uh, to an uncle's family, uh, both to kind of, uh, get away from the wrath of Esau and to find a suitable mate. And so we're going to pick up on that story in chapter 29. He, he leaves home to find a suitable wife from his mother's people. You can read about that in Genesis 28. On the way there, he has a dream, uh, stairway to heaven, if you remember that kind of um, story, and uh, connecting earth and heaven. And uh, by the way, that, that song was not popular on the charts in those days. But anyway, uh, Jacob was promised that his descendants would be numerous. And uh, as his grandfather Abram had been promised as well, he was also promised that he would at some point possess, that those people would possess the land of Canaan, and uh, he would be made into a mighty nation. Now, Jacob finally arrives at the land of his mother's people, um, and he goes to... Where would you go today if you wanted to meet a girl? To Dallas? <laughs> Not kind of what I was thinking about. <laughs> Dallas. Marcia, we need to talk. I, I was thinking Starbucks, Katie, you know. But coming to crossings would be a good place, yeah. Where people, good people gather, right? Nothing like those Texas. You did well, John. You did well. Well, it's interesting that literally Jacob goes to the local watering hole. He does. He goes to a well. In fact, that well will eventually be known as Jacob's well. Um, and there are some shepherdesses who come up there, one in particular that catches his eye, and he says to her, hey, let me get that stone for you and rolls the stone away from the well so she could water her flocks. And he actually helps her. And, uh, and he is just kind of 
enraptured with her from the very, very beginning. Now, we're going to see kind of the rest of that story today. Would uh, Bob, if you wouldn't mind, let's go to Genesis 29, and I'm gonna, we're going to jump ahead to verse 15, and I'm going to ask you to uh, read, if you will, um, uh, verse 15 through 20. Okay, now, Jacob's uncle is this guy named Laban, and he begins to work for him. Now, I want you to look at a couple of verses. Look at verse 10, same chapter, verse 10. Um, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Now, look ahead to verse 14. Laban said to Jacob, Surely you're my bone and my flesh. He meets him for the first time, and he stayed with him a month. Now, what you've got to realize is that, that as our story begins, Jacob has been in the employ of his uncle for a month. He's been helping, uh, helping out with, um, as a herdsman for a month. One of the things that's kind of interesting about the Israelite people, um, certainly uh, in the Old Testament day, is that um, they were very good at animal husbandry, very good at... Uh, at pasturing and and uh, and raising uh, all kinds of livestock, and so um, uh, one of the things that Laban, the uncle, is going to realize is that this guy knows what he's doing. First, a and b. There's another issue here. There are no sons that we're aware of in Laban's family. So Jacob becomes a becomes kind of a surrogate son, even as a nephew, and begins to kind of take care of Laban's flocks, and he works for him for about, for about a month. And he meets Rachel. Not only does he meet her at this, uh, at this well to begin with, but then he's kind of working with her for this month. Okay, she's a shepherdess. Um, Ron, do you remember the, word, the first time you ever heard the word shepherdess? We, when we were in college, there was a, a wonderful uh, program for ministers' wives that were in training called shepherdess. I just happened to remember that as I used that word. That Dr. Boyer, I think, led, didn't he? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Not going there. Not going there. Um, now, he, he meets Rachel at work for her dad. He's worked for him a month, and he hadn't been paid a dime. Now, he's, he's been able to eat at Laban's table, okay? And my guess is they probably don't set him near Rachel. no. As incentive, right? Um, and so Laban asks a question here, and the question is real, but it's kind of rhetorical. He may have, and I put some other references here, he may have already heard about Jacob's deceit, and he may have already mistrusted or distrusted Jake, Jacob. Okay? It may have. And so the question that he asked that in the verse 15 that Bob already read is a real one, but it's kind of rhetorical. What's the question? 
What are you going to charge me? Uh, it's interesting. It's uh, kind of late to be asking that question. I think after I've worked for you for a month. Uh, any of you have been around younger people? Uh, like my kids, they'll say, what, what are they going to pay you? Well, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Have you got your first check yet? No. Well, maybe they're not going to pay you. You know, you probably ought to ask that question. I don't know. I don't know. There's got to be a con. Did you sign anything? You know, is there a wage involved? Well, so this is a real question. Laban's asking of his nephew, Jacob, um, eh, what are you going to charge me for working for me? Now, what's, there's lots of things going on here, and there are going to be a lot more things going on before we're at, at, at the end of the chapter. But, but uh, what you've got to recognize here is that Jacob is working hard. He is recognized as a skilled laborer in what he's doing. He is valuable to his uncle. And he finally kind of wakes himself up and says, uh, what do I need to pay you? I find that really intriguing after a month of work. Now, what was the work? Shepherding, okay. He was doing everything. They, he was managing Laban's assets, his flocks and herds, okay? goats, sheep, those kinds of things. Um, <coughs> and what we're going to find out later in the story, well, well, you, if you read on, Jacob is really good at this. And, uh, and probably even within this month, things had improved in, um, in uh, Laban's bottom line. Okay? So he asked him, what are you going to charge me? Now, his answer, all right, in verse 16 and 17, his answer is really intriguing. Um, let's, let's, I'm going to go back and read it from the New American Standard so we can kind of get, get the detail here. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and face. Um, so um, that little bit of a narrative is going to indicate here, it's going to be the beginning here, of a, a discussion of a fierce sibling rivalry that is fueled by the father. By the way, I didn't fill in your first blank. That word should be worker. Okay, He was a hard worker. All right? Now, let's describe the two girls... Okay, that Jacob's working nearby. Now, at least one of them, Rachel, was a shepherdess. We can only assume that Leah was as well, so he knew her. What's the description of Leah? Weak eyes. She wore glasses. I don't think that's what it is. I don't think that's what it is. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, one thing that I read, I've never read this before, but one thing I read in my study is that she was... Now, the, her eyes were delicate. Now, if you take extrapolate that word in the original language, she could have been, and this is interesting now, in our culture, it could have been that Leah was blue-eyed. No. Although I can see it coming from your mind. It could have been that she was blue-eyed, and there weren't many blue-eyed people in that culture, and it wasn't considered, like it is in our culture, something to be admired. A blue-eyed person was considered to be, uh, I wrote the word in my notes here, considered to be um, um, a little bit cursed. Okay? A little bit um, um, not desirable. Don't you find that interesting? In a, in a world of 
dark-eyed people, a light-eyed person was considered, nah, not, you know, she's blue-eyed. Isn't that funny to, to think about? Okay, that's Leah, all right? Now, what, what most of the people I'm reading is, are, is, are saying is don't think of her as being homely. I've always thought that. Not necessarily. I think that the issue was these, this eye situation and, more importantly, the other description of her little sister, Rachel. What was the description of her? Beautiful. What does it say in the NIV? Beautiful form and appearance. The um, the New American, American Standard says in in um, well, let me read it. It says I read it a second ago. Now I forgot about it. What what it actually said? Um, it said beautiful of form and face. Uh, NIV I think says something about her figure in there somewhere. Okay, so this girl was a knockout, hard worker. Okay, she was working. But she was, she was impressive looking. And by comparison, my guess is um, everybody else in the room looked a little different. Okay? Certainly uh, captured Jacob's eye, caught his eye. Now, all right. So, with that as a backdrop and Laban's question, what do I owe you? What am I going to have to pay you to get you to keep working for me? Jacob answers in verse 19. And what we need to see is his answer is, a, is an enormous thing. Okay? In other, in other words, he's saying, I will do this for this wage. Now, look at 19. What's the wage? The girl. Rachel. The girl. You give me your daughter, I'll work for you for seven years. Let's, let's do the numbers on seven years. Okay? I'm not that great with math, so let me pick a number out of thin air in our day. Um, for somebody who was really in charge of lots of things, let's say he makes $100,000 a year. He's going to give $700,000 of labor in exchange for the girl. How much does he like her? A whole lot. A whole lot. This is a big deal. This is an enormous offer. Okay? What's Laban's response? What's Uncle Laban's response? The word I want to use here is a shrug. He basically says, well, I guess I'll give you the family discount. Kind of, something like that. His answer is not, I mean, I'm thinking, a guy's going to work for you for nothing in order to get to marry your daughter. He's going to make you famous. By the way, you and I know that after the fact. I guess. It gives you a little bit of an indication of what kind of guy Laban was, doesn't it? Uh, so, uh, he, cheap is a good word. <laughs> Cheap's a good word. Um, um, you know. So, Jacob, there is a narrative in verse 20 that one commentator that I read this week called one of the most romantic verses in all the Bible. 
Maybe in all the literature. Give me a synopsis of verse 20. It went by really fast. In his mind, it went by really fast. Why? Because he was nuts about her. Yeah. The idea here is, and I had to think about this a little bit, this was not just attraction. Attraction would have waned far before the seven years was up. Yeah, Wayne? Yeah, they did. In fact, I'm going to talk about that a little bit. They saw each other a lot, and they were betrothed. So think back to, think back to the Joseph and Mary story. They were contractually married but not living together. Okay, for seven years. I saw. Yeah, no, we're we're going to see that actually in the next couple of verses. It'll it'll tell us about that. Yeah. In fact. He's going to say, I want the girl now, okay, in verse 21. But if you look at verse 20, um, it, we got to park here for just a minute. This wasn't just attraction. This wasn't just, man, this girl is really hot. This was, um, that would have faded after a while. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that the girl was worth the wait. Now, let me give you a little synopsis of what probably was going on in that seven years. He had frequent contact with her in the household situation, but it was very guarded and controlled, what we would call chaperoned today. Since they knew that they were betrothed, they were not allowed to be in the room together alone, which I think is really interesting. They weren't allowed to be in Laban's tent together alone or, or in whatever place that she lived together alone. So one of the things that her dad did was provided her a maidservant. We're going to meet her later. Her name is Bilhah. And she's going to be with them anytime they're together. There may be other people around anytime they're being, being together. Uh, no private moments with her, but he sees her at her best and he sees her at her worst at work. On good days and on bad days. It's a testimony not only to her character, but to Jacob's love that Jacob doesn't become disillusioned in seven years of waiting. And I just want to say it again. And I want to say it in your presence. The girl was worth the wait. Okay? Okay? The girl was worth the wait. Now, fate, we're going to go back to what happens next because it'll give us a little detail. Let's go on forward. Um, um, Cindy, can I get you to start at verse 21 and read down through 26? Okay, now the NIV 
is scandalous in verse 21, okay? You know, what it, I'm not going to ask you what it said. But Cindy, what were you reading from? Okay, yeah. Um, it just says, he says to his uncle, give me the girl. Here's where it comes. Give me the girl. I've earned her. And it, the rest of that verse is, uh, the, in it, the New American Standard is a little milder. I want to go into her. Okay? Uh, there's no way to PG-13 this thing right here. It, it is, I have earned this, and I want to be with my wife. That's what he's saying. Okay? All right? He's earned this. Uh, so, Jacob's patience, this seven-year labor of love, this patience has now turned into kind of some impatience. Now that the day has arrived, that's only fair, right? He's done seven years of labor. Now, in verse 22, you see a celebration talked about. What you and I need to understand is this celebration has been uh, carefully planned and is enjoyed by this kind of group of hard-working people that would have been part of this, this um, uh, uh, scenario. Let me kind of explain uh, give you a little bit of background here. The, the occasion, which would have been planned for weeks with plenty of food and drink, um, uh, many lambs and goats are slaughtered and roasted. There are cakes of figs and raisins and other delicacies are served. Wine is going to flow freely. The people of the community are invited, uh, invited. These are not people of leisure. These are hardworking people. They don't party very often and getting, getting invited to Laban's feast for the marriage of his daughter is a big deal. And so people show up for this, and they're having a great time. And uh, there's a lot of money being spent um, to kind of, kind of do, uh, to, to pull this off. They all join in the celebration willingly and heartingly, uh, hearty, uh, heartily, as does Jacob and certainly Rachel and the rest of the family. But if you read verse 23 and 24, Jacob is duped by his deceptive uncle. Now, here's the scenario. Something like this. A special marriage tent is prepared for the wedding night. Uh, Laban delivers his daughter to the tent and her wedding regalia. Then Jacob goes in to spend the night with her. And, uh, but that new wife is not Rachel. I suppose he probably was. He, he was not drinking Coca-Cola, okay? All right? It, it, you know, it wasn't iced tea in that glass. It was something a little harder, Joanne. And uh, so he probably was, you know, feeling kind of tipsy, yeah. And he goes in. It was probably dark. Poorly The tent is poorly illuminated. Uh, he's probably slightly inebriated. Leah is wearing robes and a veil. Probably. And all this makes it difficult for the trusting Jacob to detect that he's spending the night with the wrong girl. Kind of sad, isn't it? Uh, in lots of ways. Sad that your father-in-law would do this to you. Sad that he would work so hard and look so forward to this moment and then it'd get all goofed up. And it really did get goofed up. And what you need to know, and looking on to verse 25, is in this culture, Jacob comes out of the tent in the morning, and it is Leah. It, you know, she puts her glasses on to be able to see the clock. And, um, um, and, and I, it really wasn't glasses. I just had to go there, okay? 
And he looks. And he comes running out of the tent and finds his uncle and grabs him by the collars and says, what did you do to me? One of the reasons he's discouraged about this, certainly, is that, and here's the word that goes in your next blank, in this culture, there's no undoing of that deception. Jacob is married to Leah. There's no undoing of that. You know, you would think, oh, maybe, you know, call the priest and let's do an annulment. You know, there just wasn't any of that to be done. Uh, he confronts his un- uncle. Um, now, and I begin to think, certainly Leah is overhearing this conversation. How painful would that be? But you need to keep in mind, Leah was part of the deception too. She had to sign off on this. I even wonder, some of the reading I did, wonders if Rachel signed off on the deception, which makes me a little nervous. But Leah's hearing him say, this is not the one I wanted to marry. Now, we, we give Jacob a lot of, you know, he, he, he gets a lot of bad press. But I've got to say something about that here. Jacob does not dismiss her. He doesn't set her aside. He takes her as his wife. How do we know this? Well, because Leah has six sons and at least one daughter by Jacob. He didn't try to undo, even though this wasn't done the right way. I I find that really intriguing and kind of wonderful, really. And it makes me like Jacob a little better. Okay. Now, as we read on, and you heard Cindy read, uh, there's no undoing of this. Jacob knows that, and he's got, you know, Laban, his uncle, by the shirt collars. Why did you do this to me? And Laban has already put together a plan to kind of um, um, set aside his sense of tra- betrayal. Let me, let me fill in your, on verse 26. The trickster has now been tricked. Jacob was a trickster most of his life. He got tricked. And Laban, then the uncle, comes up with a plan that was probably in the back of his mind this whole time. In verse 26, though, he quotes something here. Laban says, you know what? It's the law around here that you can't marry off um, the younger daughter before the older. I'm going to tell you, there's nothing like this in Levitical law. I think he makes this up. I really do. It might be customary, but there's no law. I think he makes it up. So Jacob, this guy who had kind of been a trickster, now is tricked. And he, Laban then comes up with a plan. He's probably afraid that his son-in-law is going to take at least the wife that he gave him and get out of there. And you remember, Jacob is making Laban a really wealthy guy. And so he comes up with a plan to kind of sweeten Jacob's sense of betrayal. It's a premeditated plan. Um, so he says, well, you know what? Stay with Leah a week. We'll do another wedding next weekend. I find that really interesting. He literally says this. We'll do another wedding next weekend. Now, by the way, 
think of it from Laban's perspective. It's going to save him lots of money. He won't throw another party. We'll do another party next weekend. Now, faith, here's where this whole thing comes in, and I missed this early on. He says, you can have Rachel, but you still got to work for me seven more years. So they plan another wedding for next Saturday. Jacob puts on his tux again. And now he's married to the girl that he wanted all along. He's got to wait. He's got to work seven more years for her dad. But you remember the last seven years? I got a feeling these were even sweeter. In fact, there is some indication here. Um, uh, one of the reasons, kind of if you work with the numbers, if, if Rachel was 16 when they married, she's now 23. She would be 30 at the end of another seven years. Way past, probably in their culture, childbearing years. And so this is all kind of a, okay, we've got this all figured out, even as hard as it is. And the truth is, if you read verse 28 and 29, all of this becomes a problem. In what ways? Well, the truth is, not only is Jacob married now to two girls in a week, but each of them has a handmaiden, and if you, if you remember the rest of the story, if you've read the rest of the story, eventually he has children by these two handmaidens as well with, with, their, um, with his two wives' approval. I mean, they, they're, they're trying to uh, kind of uh, build progeny and do all that. Anyway, and Jacob signs off on it. So you could argue that there are not two wives when this is all done, but four. There are 12 boys and one girl at least born to these unions, but what you got to understand is this is not the Brady Bunch. It's just not. All kinds of intrigue, lots of things that happen. But what I what I have to think about here is that even though this was an imperfect arrangement, Jacob's love for Rachel lasted. And it was a glue, his love, his original attraction to, and then his mature love for Rachel became the glue that built a nation. Now, by the way, what kind of a nation? Well, this same Jacob has the 12 sons. Before the end of his life, there'll be 72 or so of them. Okay? They end up in captivity in Egypt where they just flourish as a family. By the time they leave Egypt in Moses' day in the book of Exodus, there are two and a half million of them. Did God bless this union between Jacob and Rachel? Yeah, she had only two boys. But, but I wonder if his affection for her lasted. Was the girl worth the wait? I think so. Now, Let's think just for a minute as we close about the family itself and these dynamics. Can I tell you something? No family is perfect. I don't mean to shock you. 
No family's perfect. I love my family, but we're not perfect. You know, we were all, all eight of us. So there's, you know, I feel like, I feel like Jacob myself a little bit now. We got eight, you know, there's eight of us when we go to the, uh, and I really feel it when I have to pick up the check. But there, okay. When we were at Bob Evans having breakfast a week ago, there was eight of us around the table. We got around one big, kind of like one of these big farm tables. It was wonderful. And, uh, and you know, had pancakes and sausage gravy. It was great stuff. But, I mean, if you've never been to Bob Evans, find one somewhere and go to one. It's the best sausage gravy in the world. But, um, but, but we're not perfect. I, I hate to it disillusion you. Your little family is probably not perfect either. What's the glue that will get you through? What's the glue? It's love. We're going to study a little bit in Song of Solomon. Solomon uh, talks about um, um, the kind of the... the um, Glue that binds us together. And he's going to talk in the book of Proverbs about um, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And he's talking about the one lie together, uh, two can stay, one will be cold, two will be warm when they lie together, you know, that kind of thing. And he's talking about friendship and he's talking about godly affection. He's talking about binding one another together in love. And then he says, it's not just a cord of two strands that's unbroken. It's a cord of three. When our little girl was little, I would watch Rhonda braid her pretty blonde hair in those days. And what I realized, because there's no way, I'm not, I don't have the dexterity to be able to do anything like that. But what I recognized is that there was, every time she would braid Heather's hair, it was not just two kind of, shocks of hair that she was braiding. There was a third strand. And it was literally the third strand that was tying everything together. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. The unseen strand. In your family's world, in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships with your kids, has got to be the Lord Jesus. It just has to. Joe has written us a new, a new Year's prayer poem. Here we go. Now the time is here for old anxiety and resolution, which leads us to more questions and leads us in confusion. Our thoughts and needs should be directed to the one who created the earth, the stars, and the sun. If we come to him in our daily prayers, he will hear them all and answer because he cares. In this new year, if you'd ask as you believe, God will watch over you and comfort when you need. For this new year, remember one important thing. The tomb is empty and Christ is still the king. Joe, that was really good. God bless you. Happy New Year. We'll be in Song of Solomon, chapter 6 next week.